Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. The, the eight of us sat in a circle before the altar in the little Episcopal church near our college campus. Deeply troubled, Bronwyn had asked for prayer. Now, she's normally, she was upbeat and outgoing, just very positive, funny. But now she was distracted, she was withdrawn, her brow was furrowed, very weighed down. She explained her 15-year-old sister was getting in with a bad crowd in Atlanta, and so their mother was sending her to live with Bronwyn. So big sister was going to have to be caregiver to her little sister. And then Bronwyn stopped. She, she just couldn't say anymore. She couldn't go any further. She was too burdened, just, just crushed. And so one by one, The students prayed for her in turn, going around the circle. And they prayed for her. They prayed for her sister. They prayed for their relationship. They prayed about the challenge of becoming the parent figure to her sibling and and so on. But Bronwyn remained visibly withdrawn in deep emotional pain, and somehow, somehow I had the feeling they weren't touching on her real problem. I wasn't sure Bronwyn even really knew what was weighing her, weighing on her so much. So it was, she needed clarity about something. She needed revelation. What she needed was a prophecy. Now, prophecy plays an important role throughout the history of the Hebrews. I mean, God speaks through words and dreams and visions to Abraham, to Jacob, to Joseph. Moses emerges from Sinai as a prophet of God. Even even that foreign seer, Balaam, appears, in spite of himself, as a true prophet, well, part of the time. Samuel's a prophet, as is Nathan, down to Elijah and Elisha. Kings kept stables of prophets, hundreds of them, to give political and military advice. Half of the Old Testament is made up of the collected words of prophets. It was the calling of a true prophet to discern and put in words the will of God. Now, the prophets themselves longed for a day when all of God's people might share in the Spirit. The surest way, after all, to ensure a faithful people would be to put a new heart and a new spirit within them. That is, to inspire everybody with the same prophetic spirit that 
they knew. If only the Lord bestowed his spirit upon them, all of God's people could be prophets. And they were probably figured, boy, how many problems would that solve? Of course, it might create other problems, but I'll talk about that down the road on another day. But they longed for that. So the prophet Joel did promise a day when the Lord would indeed pour out his spirit upon all flesh, and he declared, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. In Isaiah, when he says, he promises, your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and when you turn to the right, or when you turn to the left, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Isaiah is saying pretty much the same thing as Joel. See, one mark of the coming age of the Messiah will be the return of the spirit of prophecy. There will be a fresh anointing of the faithful and the true prophets declaring the word of the Lord. And not only that, in the Messianic age, the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon all of God's people so liberally that they all will be prophets, empowered to see, to hear, to speak God's word and know God's will. When the time of fulfillment arrives, Jesus is endowed with the spirit and the power of prophecy. He knows things at a distance. He predicts the future. He knows what people are thinking. When he talks with a woman at the well of Sichar in Samaria, well, let's look at the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, oh, you're right in saying I have no husband because you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, and I want you to take note of her response here. She says, sir, I see that you are a prophet. (laughs) You see, Jesus knows her undisclosed past. He knows what she doesn't say. Married five times, her sixth man isn't her husband. And that is what prompts her to exclaim, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Now, this is important because it goes on, and she asks some questions about, well, you Jews worship here, and we worship here, and Jesus makes a prediction, the day is coming when it won't matter whether you worship here or worship there. He makes a prediction. It's not when he makes a prediction that she says, sir, I see that you're a prophet. It's when he discloses her undisclosed past. 
when he exposes what she won't say or can't say, that's when she responds, sir, I see you're a prophet. You see, a prophet reads the hearts of men and women. There are, of course, predictions. Jesus predicts that he will suffer three times, that he'll suffer at the hands of the Jewish authorities, who then, ironically, accuse him of being a false prophet as they themselves fulfill his predictions exactly. And, also ironically, even as they then mock him as a false prophet, another one of his predictions is being fulfilled right outside the door, outside the hallway, in the courtyard, as Peter denies Jesus three times before the cock crows twice. After Easter, the resurrected Jesus, the prophet, the king of Israel, appears to his disciples and he tells them to wait for the promise. Wait for the promise. Hmm, what promise? Well, that the Holy Spirit will come upon them, and he says that you'll be clothed with power. And as the Spirit falls upon the disciples on Pentecost with wind and fire and speaking in tongues, finally, Peter connects the dots. The the Spirit promised for the people of God in the Messianic age that can only be the Spirit of prophecy. This is what Joel and Jesus were talking about. And so he goes on explaining to the people in his sermon in Acts 2 that Joel's words are being fulfilled as Jesus' followers become prophets and witnesses confirming that Jesus really is the Christ and Lord. And therefore, from now on, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, Jesus, shall be saved. How does Peter know that Joel's promise of salvation through the name of the Lord is is now being fulfilled? Because God's people are all being made into prophets. As the book of Acts unfolds, everyone touched by the Spirit is made essentially into a prophet. You know, even those Samaritans, oh, those hated Romans, and those Baptists in Ephesus, you know. We're told there are prophets and teachers in Antioch. We know some of these Christian prophets by name, like Agabus and Silas. Barnabas, we're told that his nickname means son of encouragement 
but that's a very loose paraphrase. It can mean that, but that's a very loose para paraphrase. More narrowly, what it really means is son of prophecy. Barnabas is a prophet. Ananias of Damascus, Hellenist Philip, Paul, they may not be called prophets, but they hear voices, they talk with angels, they have dreams and visions, they utter true predictions. I mean, what else do you want, expect a prophet to do, you know? Philip has four da daughters who are famous for prophesying. You see, from the start, Christianity is a prophetic movement, a sign of the dawning messianic age that is where the risen Jesus is, he gives the Holy Spirit, and where the Spirit is, he makes prophets. Now, for centuries... The church fathers eagerly point out wherever the wonders of the first generation continue to occur among them. Irenaeus brags on the ongoing prophecy and foreknowledge and healings and exorcisms going on through the second century AD. The Montanists, well, okay, they get in trouble for vaunting their prophetic powers over the bishops. You know, it's, it's not good when you say, well, I'm, I have, I'm a prophet, so therefore I have a more direct line to, to, to the Lord than you do, pastor. Mm, how to win friends and influence people. But... There are very few who seriously doubt that they may well be prophets. In the third century, the church father Tertullian joined the Montanists late in life, and he believes the gift of prophecy never ceased in the church. Gregorius Talmaturgos, and I hate to make you spell that one out, Brenda. <laughs> Gregorius Taumaturgos. It's so wonderful to say. He earns his sobriquet, his nickname, Gregory the Wonder Worker, by his miracles and prophecies. Prophecy continues among the holy men of Syria, like Simon Stylites, and the uh, monks and monastic hermits of Egypt like St. Anthony and others. So it's surprising to hear many folks today claim that prophecy ceased with the close of the apostolic age at the end of the first century AD. If they bothered to read church history, they'd know the gifts never vanished. They just didn't have a press agent as compelling as Luke. That's all. Now, there have always been some cessationists in the church. Cessationist is a term for those who think the work of the Spirit 
the more miraculous work of the Spirit ceased at the end of the first century. And that's because they thought it ceased. They're called cessationists. And there have always been some because they look around at their contemporaries and they see little, if any, manifestation of the power of the Spirit. You know, and so they conclude, well, it must have been taken away. Which means, basically, we're going to say, if we don't see it, it must be God's fault. It could never be our fault, right? Let's blame it on God. Now, John Calvin himself looked around and he said, well, I don't see any of it now. But he was wise enough to suggest that if God should endow... Uh, should intend to endow believers with the gift of prophecy from time to time, well, he can certainly do it and undoubtedly will. Others have not been so wise. Now, our modern cessationism, which is just permeated through, I was going to say American culture, but it's actually spread around the world, Modern cessationism harks back to John Nelson Darby. Darby was from 1800 to 1882. He invented what's called dispensationalism. And it was spread by the study notes in the Schofield Study Bible. That was the very first study Bible with doctrinal notes in the, in the margins and down at the bottom of the page. Now there's a lot wrong with the work of Darby and Schofield, and this is part of it. Prophecy, they say, was part of the apostolic age. One of the dispensations of time ordained by God. It ceased when the last apostle died. And in its place, the church was given the New Testament. The prophetic spirit enshrined in paper. But to justify their interpretation, Darby and Schofield point to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 to 10. And take a look at this. He says, Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the teleos, teleios comes, and I'm going to explain that word in a moment, the partial will come to an end. Now Paul does say, here that the gifts of the Spirit will cease one day. And he lists specifically tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. But they're representative of the charismatic gifts as a whole. But this is only going to happen when the teleois comes. The teleois. Now the Greek word telos Teleois can mean that which, it, that which is complete or completeness. And Darby applied that then to Scripture. 
kind of out of the blue. So that's the Bible. Because in the Bible, the revelation of God has reached its pinnacle and completion. We have the perfect, inerrant, written word of God. So the gifts of the Spirit are therefore obsolete. Now, this is a very far-fetched interpretation on many levels. Prophecy and tongues are not the only gifts of the Holy Spirit that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 or in Romans chapter 12. What about knowledge, which Paul says is also going to come to an end? What about evangelism? and teaching, administration, generous giving. What about cheerful helpfulness? Those Paul calls charismatic gifts of the Spirit as well. I don't see any of those withdrawn and obsolete because we have the New Testament. Because we have the New Testament, it doesn't mean we stop taking an offering because we don't need generous giving anymore, right? And Paul says that's one of the gifts of the Spirit. You see, you don't get to arbitrarily pick and choose which gifts to keep and which to jettison like Darby and Schofield did. So what's Paul talking about when he says, when the teleois comes? Well, when Paul tells, talks about telos or teleois, it is never a thing. It is always a time. It is a time, an event. It is the time of completion. It is the consummation of all things, when Jesus returns and raises the dead, in other places, like in 1 Corinthians 15, it is translated most often, the end. So Paul continues, if we look at the context, Paul continues in chapter 13, we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part, but when the teleois comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. So, meaning in the same way, now we see in a mirror dimly. Then we will see face to face. Now. I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Here in this context, Paul is contract, contrasting now with a future then. So what is that then? Like the transformation we undergo in growing from uncomprehending child to more or less reasonably mature adult. So now in this life, our vision is still blurry. 
Our perceptions are dark and distorted like an old mercury mirror. But a day is coming when we shall see God face to face, and we shall at last understand completely. Is, can there be any question what that then is referring to? If then is the consummation, the return of Christ, Paul's words make sense. When Christ returns and disease and decay and death are no more, when the dead are raised and the living transformed into a heavenly existence, when we are glorified and perfected, then we will no longer need gifts of healing or miracles. Does that make sense? You know, when we see God, when we're there before the throne, are we going to need gifts of generous giving? We're there in the bounty of God. Are we going to need gifts of kind compassion? Patience may be with each other, but kind compassion, we won't need to be, have the compassion for them because they're not going to have those pitiable needs. Our needs will be met. When all speak the language of heaven, we'll not need other tongues. You know, when, when we know as we are known, prophecy and knowledge and wisdom are going to be obsolete. When we see God face to face, we're not going to need evangelists. It says, you know, no one will have to say, Isaiah says, no one will have to say, know the Lord, because they'll all know them from the least to the greatest. We won't need evangelists. We won't need teachers or, or prophets. I mean, who could teach you anything when the truth is right there before your eyes? When your voice hears your teacher whispering over your shoulder. But until then, until then, you and I need all the help we can get. The Bible never speaks of an apostolic age. Nobody ever thought that there might, that that age they were in might ever peter out because the resurrection of Jesus and the descent of the Spirit inaugurated what we might call the messianic age. Do you hear me? There was not an apostolic age. It's the messianic age when Christ conquers the powers and the gospel reaches Jew and Gentile. There is no apostolic age. That's a modern fiction. There's only the messianic age, which will last until the Gentile mission is complete and the full number of the Gentiles come into faith, then all Israel is saved, 
and Christ annihilates his enemies, including death. It will last from Easter till the end. Until that day, the church lives and works in the Messianic age. And a sign of the Messianic age is the prophetic power of the Spirit. It is historically, exegetically, and theologically irresponsible to presume the prophetic gifts of the Spirit have been withdrawn and are no longer accessible or needed. Most of you know this already. It's the mother's milk of every diehard charismatic Christian. Yeah, I heard that. <laughs> but there may be newcomers or visitors among us for whom this might be new. There may be some joining us online who know nothing of these things, and on any given day, some of you may run into people who don't know about this and who may have questions or challenges, and you need to understand a little more background here yourself. So hopefully, so far, we're all up to speed now. Now, the only real description of prophecy, Christian prophecy, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul is contrasting intelligible prophecy with unintelligible speaking in tongues. And I keep saying there's nothing wrong with speaking in tongues, and certainly you should never forbid it. But because Paul must devote so much space to this, we can deduce that the Corinthians were overvaluating the speaking in tongues as the mark of life in the Spirit. Whereas for Paul, it's not tongues, but prophecy is the distinctive mark of the Messianic age. So let's pull together what Paul says about prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14, and I'm just taking partial verses because he goes through contrast. He'll say, well, prophecies like this and tongues are like this. And then he'll go on, well, tongues are like this and prophecies like this. So I just want to pull those parts of verses where he's addressing the issue of prophecy. So he says, strive for the spiritual gifts and especially that you may prophesy. Then those who prophesy speak to other people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. He says those who prophesy build up the church. And he notes if all prophesy, an unbeliever or outsider who enters is reproved by all and called to account by all. After the secrets of the unbeliever's heart are disclosed, that person will bow down before God and worship him, declaring, 
God really is among you. I reverse the word order of that because I want, this is Paul's, that's what Paul is, is in the Greek, that's where the emphasis lies. God really is here among you. Now notice that Paul here says nothing about revealing the future, nor is it a call to action, and I'm going to be getting around to that next week. But on the one side, on the one side, prophecy offers upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So consolation is, of course, when you're despondent and you, you're lifted. Encouragement is when you're, you're moving in a direction, but you need support and direction and, and that go get them kind of enthusiasm. Upbuilding, which is a matter of growing and becoming more aware. You see, God speaks to our needs and our disappointments, our challenges and our burdens to lift the weary and relieve the broken. That's on the one side. And on the other side, God reveals the secrets of the heart so that sin is remanded and sinners called to account. Not, please note, called to account not in a spirit of condemnation that sends them running for the door, but in compassion to offer repentance and freedom, worship and wonder. Jesus did not condemn the woman at the well for what she would not or could not confess. He just points it out and lets her draw her consequences. And what happens, she goes running to tell everybody, I just met somebody who told me everything I've ever done. That is how God wants to call sinners to account in a healing and healthy way. So why is prophecy important in this, the messianic age? We do have scripture. You know, the wonderful promises, the sharp reproofs of the law, the prophets, the psalms of Jesus and Peter and Paul. Everything must conform to what Scripture teaches. But in this life, even with the Bible, we know only in part. Do I hear an amen on that? We know only in part. We don't have, none of us were born eating truth with a spoon. We usually learn it the hardest way possible. We know only in part. So, even if we know Scripture, it's, <coughs> excuse me, even if we know Scripture, it's not, not always clear which Scripture or what principle applies to 
this or that particular situation I'm facing. And I just need, I just need some clarity or some confirmation. And I may know what Scripture tells me to do, but in spite of that, I may resist facing or admitting some sin, most often because I'm simply too embarrassed or ashamed of it. And I need to be called to account in a supportive and healthy way. And then there are deceivers. Deceivers can quote scripture as well as anybody else, and they can sound plausible enough. And I don't always know my own heart. And I need help. I need revelation. I need that teacher whispering over my shoulder, this is the way. Walk in it. Prophecy, you see, drives home to you to you personally, the biblical truth or truths that God sees. God understands your problems, that God supports and encourages, that God transcends your limitations, that God holds you accountable, that God reproves, if needed, you that God protect his church. All of this meaning you. As we took turns praying for Bronwyn, we obviously were not touching on her real worry. She needed a revelation from God to some unspoken issue. And so... As we went around the circle, silently I prayed and I asked, Lord, well, Lord, how do you want me to pray? And that inner voice spoke very firmly, very clearly, thank me for taking care of the money problem. Well, hmm, that's interesting. Now, Bronwyn hadn't said anything about money. So when it came my turn, going around the circle, I, I only prayed, Lord, thank you for taking care of the money problem. And Bronwyn jerked up like she'd been hit by lightning and stared at me wide-eyed, who told you about the money problem? I hadn't told anybody about that. Trying to be nonchalant, <laughs> you know, I shrugged and said, well, the Lord says he's taken care of it so you can relax. And in that moment, you could watch as the tension drained out of her face, and she wept. She knew in that moment, her deep, in her deepest being, that God had already seen her dilemma. He cared about her and her need, 
and was already preparing his provision. Friends, that is life in the Messianic age. Let's pray. Lord, you have inaugurated a time in this world where the Spirit is poured out. We have a message of life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you have empowered us to demonstrate it, among other things, in the spirit of prophecy. Lord, people still need encouragement and consolation. People still need revelation of their deepest needs or their hidden secrets so they can be free. Lord, people still need these things. So I ask, Lord, that you would endow every believer And right now, I pray especially for every believer in this church that you would endow every believer with the Holy Spirit and the spirit of prophecy. We may not all become prophets in that sense who do it always and regularly, but Lord, every one of these people, empowered by your spirit, can hear your voice and know the words you wish to say to the burdened souls they meet. Make this people a prophetic people. And I ask it for now in the name of Jesus and to the glory of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the KPC podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.